0: Okay, so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'll paint the picture of, like, my family and my upbringing because I think that there's some value there in the way that people see me. Um, I feel like I'm this person that, uh, you know, you're talking about characters and celebrities and stuff, and not to say that I'm a celebrity by any stretch, but the, um, the way people see me, I think it's real interesting because I'm sort of this hybrid kind of person. I mean, my name's Jason Gonzalez but I look like a white dude. So everyone thinks that, I mean, and I'm, to be fair, I'm, you know, I'm half Spanish, but you know, people want to sort of put me in a box a lot of times. So, um, so I think it is worthwhile to take it all, all the way back. So let's, let's do that. Um, you know, not to make anybody feel sorry for me, but you know, it's kind of a tough upbringing, single mom, you know, dad, sort of in and out of jail, that kind of thing. Um, and, I mean, this is a pretty – I think it's a pretty common story. You know, I'm not special here, but uh, that's just the, the setting, I guess. And uh, – but love my parents both equally. Um, you know, mom had problems with alcohol. You know, my dad's, like, this crazy – my dad, he's, like, just a, a character in, in himself. Like, he's, you know, almost 60, and this guy, like, does the craziest stuff, like skateboards. And, like, like. I mean, a couple of years ago we were talking to him, and he was like, he was, like, skateboarding and being pulled by, like, some truck, and I guess he fell off his skateboard and ate it, and he was just, like, telling this story, and I was like, Dad, you got to stop doing stuff like that, man. Like, you're going to kill yourself. But he has, like, a million stories where he's literally almost
1: died. So, anyway, this is, these are my parents. I'm Ben Grennell, and this is Character. The path to somewhere with the gone.
2: Um, and so, did but, yeah. your dad, was he like heavy into skateboarding growing up? Like, like when he was, I mean, he would have been, if he was into skateboarding, that's like in the eighties, in the seventies when it was just getting big.
0: Yeah. He, he, yeah, he used to have one of those old school, like 80s skateboards, like the, I don't know what the, the technical term is, but like, you know, like when they had that little, that stopper on the back end, like it was just the one shape. It wasn't yeah. like, um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? And he, uh, he's an adrenaline junkie is what he is. Um, Literally that guy should be, he should have been born a car. I mean, like he is like, I mean, when he was nine, got into dirt bikes. Um, So like I'm from Bakersfield, California, which kind of gets made fun of a lot, but it's like in this middle of California and it's in the, it's in a Valley. And there's like a lot of uh, places you can go out and ride dirt bikes and stuff like that. And so, you know, he's, like I said, he's an adrenaline junkie. When he was 16, he um, he was driving, like, El, I think it was an El Camino, and it was a bench seat, and obviously he didn't have to wear seat belts back then. So he's, like, doing, uh, he's doing donuts in a field, and his buddy, like, slides across the bench seat, and the car rolls, and he gets shot out the front window, and it, like, it almost kills him. And so he's in the hospital. They do some emergency surgery where they cut his stomach open. He still has, like, a giant scar down the center of his stomach today. Um, And he's telling me the story of, like, he remembers, like, sort of, um, he he can see his family, but they're starting to go away, like tunnel vision. They're starting to go away. And his dad slaps him in the face, and it brings him back. And he's like, you're not going to (laughs) die. And, uh, I mean, that was when he was 16. And so this Actually stunted his growth, so my dad's actually pretty short he's like five two um but he's he's a badass you know, at the same time, so it's just kind of funny like he's just a crazy crazy guy um and that's my dad it sounds man.
2: like you're pretty close yeah it sounds like you're pretty close with your your pops or your your parents though like
0: yeah it's it's an interesting relationship, like definitely my mom like you know she for all of her shortcomings or, like, challenges, she was she did the right thing in that she was a loving mom. And I think that's all you can really – I mean, that's the best thing a parent can do is just to, like, love their kids. Um, and my dad just sort of – you know, I mean, absent kind of dad, sort of self-centered, if you will, but still somewhat caring. I mean, I don't hold anything against the guy, but, you know, I mean, I don't it's, – it's like I talk to him once every couple years or year when he decides to just randomly call me. And, and, uh, so that's just the relationship it is. I don't hold anything against him. It's just like, oh, hey dad, what's going on now? You know? And,
3: uh, it is what it
0: is really. Yeah. And and why was he in and out of jail? Like, how did that go down? Oh man. Um, you know, drug use, abuse, like, you know, hit my mom, that kind of thing. So it's like, um, yeah, just like I said, like a rough upbringing, like, I mean, just to be totally transparent, like, you know, my mom. Like, when I was, like, shit, like, eight, uh, she got she got beat with a baseball bat by, like, um, our stepdad at the time, and, like, he broke her femur, you know what I mean? And uh, holy, that's the kind of, yeah, man, that's the kind of crap. But, like, I don't know, man, it's just, like, that stuff happens a lot. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, those types of abuse stories, it's just, I'm sure if you, you know, you talk to a lot of people, there's a lot of stuff like that. It's just, that's the environment I grew up in. It was just really harsh, you know, we even though we lived in Bakersfield, we moved around a lot and we'd moved to bad neighborhoods. And, um, I had, a, I have an older brother. He's like a year and a half older and the pretty much what would go down is, um, we'd moved to a bad neighborhood and like we, you know, he would have to prove himself. Um, usually I would I wouldn't, uh, he, he would protect me kind of, but he'd have to get in fights and stuff with these kids just to get their respect. And, um, but it's kind of funny because it goes two ways. Like, my, my brother was a badass himself, and, you know, when we would get in fights, he'd beat the crap out of me. And so it's like my experience with fighting is fighting him, and he would beat everybody up. So, um, it, it, you know, it's just so – actually, that's kind of how I got into fighting is like – uh, which that's something maybe I haven't even talked about a little bit, but, you know, learning how to defend myself because my brother would beat my ass. <laughs> so, uh, so you
2: know, and, nowadays – And that's like, that's like your norm. So, yeah, right. Like that was like your norm yeah. growing up. That was just like that's your benchmark for, and especially like if it's happening when you're younger, you don't mm-hmm. know any different. Um, especially. especially if there are kids in, in the neighborhood that are experiencing, you don't want to say identical, but somewhat similar situations where you're just like, oh cool, yeah, like uh, like uh, that guy. Yeah, buddy's dad uh, beat up his mom, or yeah, buddy's dad. He's uh, he's just like he's going to jail tomorrow. He, he got caught with like a pound of weed or something. Right. And you're just Dude, like, yeah, absolutely, that's way is. Cause you don't know yeah. any different until you it get older. That you're like, that's a little, that's a little fucked up. Like, you know, cause you can actually <laughs> rationalize it.
0: Yeah. You man. Know? I mean, you're, you're dead on here. It's like, of course I reflect on these things and go, man, that's, you know, that sucks. But like, but you're, you're dead on. It's like, yeah, that just, that's just what happened. And you just, you just sort of do, like you don't even think too much about it. Like you're right, the norm. I mean, that's the that's the perfect word to use. That's just the norm. That's just what happens.
2: And and all of these life experiences. I, I hate saying this because I I say it all the time. But uh, for anybody who listens regularly, is that it's like life is this calculation of all these different experiences that we have, and it ends up equaling you or your character, right? Like it ends up all these little. Micro and macro things that we get exposed to end up influencing us in such interesting ways that we don't even realize. And then
0: all of a sudden, you are you for those reasons, right? Yeah, man. I think about that literally, like probably daily. Like that calculation you're talking about, because you know my calculation is sort of a weird one. I mean, um, yeah, I mean it's, it's it's you know if you look at my story, it's like I'm it appears that I'm all over the map. Um, so, so with that, I'll just kind of tell you a couple things, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know if there's anything much else interesting within the childhood. I mean, I kind of painted that broad picture, but like, you know, in high school, I was a horrible student. Like I was a class clown, didn't take anything seriously. I was like in theater. Um, I wasn't really like a popular, I was, people knew me really well, but like, I wasn't like, um, I didn't fit in really to any category. Like I knew the like sort of preppy popular kids and they were friends with me and I was friends with them, but I was also friends with, I mean, I could just kind of get along with everybody. Like the theater kids, like I said, um, it didn't matter. Like I was just friends with everybody and you know, uh, so <laughs> I remember my senior year, uh, I called my grandmother up. And I'm, like, crying because I'm, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Like, I've been goofing off, but now it's time to graduate. Hopefully I can because I almost didn't graduate. I had to go to adult school to to finish up high school. And
3: uh,
0: (laughs) so my brother ends up going to the Navy. And, you know, like I said, he's, he's basically a grade ahead of me. And so I just kind of followed in his footsteps. Like, he kind of talked. Well, he didn't talk me into it, but he's kind of listing the benefits. He's like, hey, you should do this. And so I took the test as you do when you're like a, I think a junior or senior and went down to the um, it's called METS, which is like the military, like processing station or whatever. And they told me I could be a photographer and they're like, you know, my, my, um the the recruiter that was with me, he was actually like the number two Navy recruiter in the, in the nation. And he's like, he's like this, he's like, this is actually the job that I want. And he wasn't DSing. He's like, this is such a rare job and it's so hard to get because it's basically public relations. And um he's like he's like, I just want you to know this is a very rare job. And the cool thing about the Navy is they guarantee your job, which is unlike any of the military branches. So I'm like, Well, I don't have a better plan, so the Navy it is and I'm gonna be a photographer, you know? And um yeah, I, I basically went went to boot camp, went to A school and like I said, I was in theater, so my long game, I had, like, this whole convoluted plan of how I was going to use the, na- the Navy to buy a condo in L.A. because I wanted to be an actor. That's actually what I wanted to do. So, um,
2: Dude, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. And you, like, let's back it
2: up for a sec. So you yeah. you graduate high school from going to adult mm-hmm. school. Your brother's already yeah. been in the Navy for a year or two years or whatever it is. And he's like, yeah. yo, Jason, mm-hmm. you got to get in on this Navy thing. It's great. You apply. Yeah. And then they're like, yeah, you can be in it. And instead
0: of scrubbing the deck, all you have to do is snap photos all day. A, yeah. Pretty much actually that's, that's pretty close. And in fact, I was set up to do like, so since I was a little ahead of the curve, um, I actually was friends with, like, one of the Navy recruiters, the guy who actually worked our school, and he was a different guy. And um, basically they're like, hey, man, if you, if you get in first, kind of like a pyramid scheme, if you get in first, then everybody that goes in after you will say that you recruited them and it's going to advance me, um, like, as fast as possible. So I went in as an E3. Uh, so I had higher pay. I was ready to be advanced, like, right away, like, to an E4, which is, like, where you get your first Chevron. And, uh, yeah, I pretty much had it, like, all specked out. And, um, like, it was going to be all just gravy, man. Like, uh, like, kind of like how you just replayed it right there. So, yeah, um, but the, I don't know if you have any questions here, but there is a turn in this story, <laughs> uh, which is I that. You, I'm, I'm just all I, ears. Okay. So, when I, uh, when I got to A school, so me, me, and, this, me and this recruiter, we had a plan. He actually he wanted to do some performing stuff too, and we're like, hey man, we would go down to L.A. on the weekends and we'd look at condos. I mean, I was like 18 years old looking at condos off the Sunset Strip. At the time, they were only like 250 thousand, which, you know, obviously as a kid, that's a lot. But we knew the government would—it's called a, a veterans loan—and they'll give you a, a pretty sizable loan for housing. And my plan was let's um, let's get this condo. The government supports us while we're in the navy so um we'll rent it out and if if nobody's there we definitely have the the money to cover it because all of our living's covered so by the time I get out of the navy um which my enlistment was 5 years um you know I'm going to I'm going to have a condo in LA and I can pursue this acting thing and that's yeah that things went sideways let's just say that um the guy that this recruiter guy I don't want to say his name but uh he was he was a good friend of mine, but he, he ended up turning out to be you know he was a he liked me he was gay, and I didn't know it and uh so I found this out in sort of a weird way and uh, you know I basically was like, man, you should have just told me, but like you've been lying this whole time, so we can't be friends anymore like you're just you know totally dishonest and uh so that went crazy because he ended up doing some crazy like I had a Volkswagen bus, 1971. It was. It looked a lot like the Little Miss Sunshine, you know, uh, bright yellow and white. Oh, dude. And I wanted this.
2: Yeah. Beautiful this car. car. Since, beautiful vehicle.
0: Beautiful. So, so the, 1971, I wanted this car since I was eight years old and uh, got it when I was a senior. I felt super cool. I loved it. You know, I loved this car. So, he ended up putting sugar in the gas tank and um, <laughs> that was the first time. Yeah, dude. That was the first time he sort of messed my car up, and then the second time he threw a, a giant rock, like the size of a football, through the, the front windshield. And um, I mean, it was like a like an ex girlfriend or something like even crazier. You know, it was nuts. And uh, so that pretty
2: but much. But you can't ruined... say anything because. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. Oh no no. I
3: please. was just going to say yeah, you, so can't you can't. Say can't but you
2: can't say anything. Like you can't be like, hey. I'm going to be the Navy tattletale and tell the – I don't know the – I'm going to speak out of terms here. I'm just going to call a Navy a sergeant. I don't know what, like, the freaking person is. That's all good. The the head. Yep. The captain. Captain. Is it a captain? Well,
3: uh,
0: you'd be, be like, maybe, like, an executive officer or, like, a petty officer or the chief. Chief's kind of like middle management. So, like, you can't tell his chief or his um, reporting officer, like, what's going on because, yeah, it's bad news for him. So – and plus, I couldn't prove it.
2: And, and and so, like, the whole time, so backing up for a sec, you buy mm-hmm. this condo in L.A. or you're, like, you have this plan to buy a condo with a quote-unquote bro. You're like, hey, you're, you're my bro. I'm going to yep. freaking, yeah, we're going to get this thing together. It's going to be like a little business venture thing. We'll rent it out. Then maybe, like, we'll go live there together, both jam in L.A. We can both act or, like, do our own side hustle. And that was the long game. Meanwhile, this guy is like, hey, I'm entering into, like, a long-term relationship with this guy who I like, but I'm not going to let him know.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and um Damn. so, you know, cut cut to, you know, I get out, of, get out of basic or boot camp, and I go to Fort Meade, Maryland on the East Coast. And this is where the NSA was at, where, like, the whole – um basically like the, the guy who, one of the guys who uh, flew one of those planes, he would run by this particular NSA. So just to kind of give you where this place is at. Um, so it was like a high security uh, army base. And um, this is where my training was going to take place, like to learn photography. And it, it's a little unusual because whenever you're in the, whenever you go to like A school, you typically just go with a bunch of people who are in the same uh, branch as you. So you'd go to like a Navy A school with a bunch of Navy people. But once again the the rating the job itself was very rare, so they teach um like everybody's all together, so you're with army marines navy coast guard air Force so it really was kind of a special uh job and so I'm here at this place you, i get there did you go ahead yeah uh,
2: did you have photo skills going into it
0: no none zero, but you know they what? okay they, so it's not like
2: you weren't like a, an expert photographer that they were like – they identified you and they're like, oh, perfect fit. This guy, look at his well, Instagram profile freaking when it happened you know a
0: million years ago. But like Wait. look at this guy's photo portfolio. He's sick. Here we go. Well, they have a way – this is actually really interesting you bring this up because they have a way, whenever they do the testing that you have to take for to get in the military, that thing is like on point. Because, um, I mean, I do have, like, when I was a kid, the one thing I did the most was, like, I drew, like, like nobody's business. So I would draw all the time. And so there's this sort of visual, I don't know, capability that I have. And when I got to this school, I found out there's a bunch of people, like, who were creatives, like, sort of people who had a lot of similar aspirations of, um, like, being, like, uh, like, actors and things like this. Like, it was, like, it was really weird how they were able to, pinpoint me they knew I had some sort of capabilities I think based on these tests Uh, I didn't know that about myself but I had no experience so they were going to train me um, and this is actually I learned an important lesson while doing this because this is where I learned that I could learn anything sort of meta-learning based on this training because it was like I think it was like an eight or nine week program and you do eight hours a day of photography like hardcore textbook and then you'd go like shooting film, like I mean you were you were deep in photography, you know what I mean? Like so they teach you really well, and they give you all the skills you need. And I just remember thinking, because you remember I barely graduated high school, so I'm thinking like holy crap, like I'm learning that I can learn anything. Like look at this, you just have to crack open a book and then like dedicate yourself, and you can learn whatever you want. <laughs> so that was that was an interesting moment for me to realize that. Um, but real quick, let me let me run through this. Yeah, like when you, I get, you, yeah keep, keep keep jamming through it. Well, yeah. So there's there's a something that happened when I got there. It's pretty important. So as soon as I get there, I'm you know I, I go to my uh, they're called like your barracks. You know, you get there and you're you're basically put on holding. You're waiting to class up. You're waiting to actually be put in a photography class. And if when everybody's like that happens to everybody, so you hang out for a few weeks and they have you cleaning the barracks or whatever. And you notice these people, you're like, hey, what's, what's, uh, what's Jeff over there doing? Like, why is he, he seems like he's in trouble. What's going on with him? And they're like, oh, well, he said, uh, he, said he was crazy. He said that, he, like, literally, there was, someone told me, like, yeah, he said he sees, like, little green men and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, we just knew that he was trying to get out of the military. And that was common. There's a few people like that. And what happens is the military sits on the paperwork. And they're like, oh, you want to get out of here? Well, we're going to mess with you. So they don't, they take their time processing you and they make it hell on you. So you basically set an example to show everyone else like, hey, don't do this. And so I saw that and was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, But all these things that happened, like I basically was in the military after the fact that I found out, you know, my, my homie who uh, we were no longer going to get a condo. Basically the plans were falling apart and so I'm in the Navy, I'm taking my classes and I'm, I'm doing my very best because I want to be, I want to graduate at the top of my class so I can get, um, I'm trying to get stationed in San Diego on the West coast. Cause I'm thinking at least I can try to commute up to LA and, and do my best, you know, to, uh, establish something, um, as an actor, like, you know, whether it's get an aging, get headshots, whatever. And, um, I'm actually, really well in my A school and they they nominate me for like sailor of the month, which sounds corny, but it's actually a big deal. And, um, but when I finally got my orders for where I was going to be stationed, it turned out it was going to be Oceana, Virginia. And from that point on, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm I'm getting out. And uh, so I basically stopped going to class because what I learned was the second you graduate, The very second you graduate, once they say, all right, you're done, you're actually no longer their responsibility. You're actually the responsibility of the next duty station. So I was like, okay, I have to basically stop this process of me graduating if I want to get out. And I went and saw the shrink. And thank goodness he was a a civilian because a lot of times they're like an officer. Uh, So they're in the military and they kind of treat you a certain way. And um, basically I, uh, I told this guy, look, I'm not crazy, but I don't want to do this anymore, and I want out. And he's like, okay, well, we need to do some tests. So it's like, okay. And um took, like, two tests. One of them was, like, 1,200 questions, and the other one was, like, 200. And, I, you know, I come back, and he's like, well, there's no smoking gun. You're not crazy. And I'm like, I know. I, I told you I'm not crazy, um, but I don't want to do this. And um, so long story short on that, he's like, well, I kept going back and back and back, and he's like, well, there's nothing we can really do. He did say there's, like, a a failure to adjust period, but it's, like, I was beyond that. I think it was, like, nine months, and I was over that. So he's like, and what that means is you can get out kind of scot-free. Like, you fail to adjust, no problem. We'll process you out. But I missed that window, and I I was so pissed. And I remember going back to my barracks um walking down I saw there's like a, a brick wall and I wanted to punch that thing so bad and I I walked down there's a uh, a gym under the you know down like a level down and they have this punching bag that's one of those like water punching bags where it's weighted on the the bottom and I just beat that thing up with no gloves on I was so mad and what happened it was actually my saving grace it since it skinned up my knuckles you know I I had like um scabs on my knuckles uh my my chiefs saw this and they were like, oh, crap, you know. And then when I went back to the shrink, he saw that, too. And they saw this as, like, signs of me willing to hurt myself. But I, I had no intentions of hurting myself. I was just mad. And uh, so that kind of started the process of me getting out. And that was a pretty crazy story because it was, like, nobody wants that to happen because it sets the wrong tone for everyone else because everybody truly wants to get out, too. Like, they're like oh, crap, Jason's getting out. I want to get out, too. Um, and so I eventually convinced the shrink, he's like, I call him a shrink, but you know, the psychologist, uh, to, he's like, all right, fine. Cause yeah, I guess he didn't want to see me like hurt myself. He's like, all right, what I'll do is I'll, um, I forgot the, the technical term you used, but basically said, uh, I can't remember right now, but it's, it's kind of like a, it's not a mental disorder, but it's something that you could basically say for everybody, like, oh, everybody has this. But he applied it in a certain way, and I was able to get out with, a, with a, an honorable discharge. So I got out scot-free as though if I was, like, actually – if I finished my enlistment. So totally free and clear. No no scratches. Just you're you, out. You're done. You were in for five years, though? No. I, or you're supposed I to be that, in for five. I was supposed to be in for five. I was in for about a year because I was able to, like, stop that process. And I was able to get out. I mean, honestly, it was, um, let me tell you how stressful it was. (laughs) It was so stressful. I remember um, I was walking up to my room one night and my head was just like throbbing because I was so stressed out. And then just all of a sudden my nose started bleeding, just like blood started pouring out of my nose. That's how stressed I was. And I, I couldn't believe it when I got out because it seemed like an impossible thing to do. Like People were like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm getting out. Of, I'm getting out of the Navy is what I'm doing." <laughs> so is that like
2: common? Like a lot of people go in and then they just want out, but they feel trapped and there's no way
0: to get out. It's it's so common that in camp, dudes will do anything. Like they'll are um, a lot of times you have it when you're in a division. There's another division like um, like they call it your brother division, but basically it's your division that you kind of compete against. And we'd heard stories of guys getting in bunks with other guys pretending to be, like, gay just so they would get kicked out. Um, but there was a mil- – I mean, we had a few guys in our division who uh, – what did they do? I mean, they did all kinds of crazy stuff. Nobody wants to be in, man. It's like being a prisoner.
2: But people sign up for it. That's a crazy thing that you think that you want to go in, and then as soon as you're in and it's really hard, I guess people get mentally beat down. Like, that's the point, right? Isn't
0: it? Yeah, It. It it does, there's, um, I guess when you start to realize what it is about, once you start realizing, like, I no longer belong to myself, I actually belong to the government, and, um, I mean, boot camp's honestly not that bad, to be honest, it was kind of, I had fun, like, I remember laughing real hard, having a good time, and there's some stories there, too, but um, for other people, it's just, they can't, they, they just, it's not for them, and that's the best way to put it, some people are all about it. lot of people are um you know you got dudes who are repping out push-ups in their free time because they're like you know i'm going to be a seal i'm going to be a navy seal or um you know whatever it is like so there's a varying degree of the type of people who want to do this but there's a ton of people who go no no no, this is just like being i feel like i'm in prison um and even my brother you know he finished his enlistment and he when he was on the ship he was like dude He's like, I legitimately thought I was going to... He's like, I know this is irrational. He's like, I thought I was going to die out in the ocean. Like, I would never see family again. He's like, I just thought that the rest of my life, I was just going to be on this ship, and I was going to die. I felt like... You know, he said he felt like a prisoner. Like, he was on a floating prison. And he couldn't get out. Well, yeah, he didn't try to get out. I mean, he...
3: No, but I'm just saying, like, that's
0: your thought process. You're like, oh,
2: you're out there, and you're like, and I can't get, uh, there's nothing I can do. And, like, I'm imagining this, but if somebody's in that position, you're like, yo, we're in the middle of the ocean. I have no idea where we are. I can't see land anywhere. But if I fucking jump Mm -hmm. overboard and start swimming, I'm going to get to land sometime soon if I don't get eaten by sharks first or some shit like that. Like, like, your mind is starting playing tricks on you.
0: Your mind does so you much. You think it's so rational. You're learning,
2: like, when I was learning to
0: I'm going to steal to the dinghy
2: off the side, <laughs> and no one's going to know.
0: Yeah. When I was learning you know? to do photography in A school, they literally, the second course or, like, the second week, they have you learn how to take uh, photos of dead bodies. And, I mean, you don't use real bodies, but they have you basically crime scenes because people kill themselves all the time because they, there's no escape, so they just take that way out so like literally part of my gig was um it's called being like an on duty photographer if something goes down and somebody hangs themselves in their you know you know in their um compartment or whatever you have to go take photos of that to document it like that's how common it is you know that's savage well isn't yeah, it man, like the stat is that more people
2: more people commit suicide uh overseas when they're enlisted than actually die during combat?
0: Yeah, I've heard that. I have heard that. Yeah, I... I, I, I don't know how, would, I mean, if it's
2: true or not. It could be... Yeah. It, it sounds like it could be true, but I don't know, so I'm not going to well,
0: say well,
2: even, it is, you Well, know, even yeah,
0: it's, even boot camp, even though it wasn't that crazy, like it wasn't that bad, I remember, I mean, it was like nine weeks long. You literally feel like Groundhog Day. You're like, oh man, this. you, you start losing perception of time because you do the same thing every day. And so if you're doing that on a ship for like six to nine months and my brother, by the way, when my when my brother graduated, he graduated on nine eleven. He graduated when the planes hit. So like that was the no day he graduated. Way. Yeah, man. Yeah. So they actually had to of course all of the planes were grounded, nobody could fly anywhere and he had to go to Florida. So they just bust all they bust him to Florida and um that's kind of how he started his military career was like, all right, I guess we're in war and you know, that's it. I mean, so when I joined, you know, it was time of war and he was just starting it. It was time of war for him too. So.
2: Yeah. And there's so much media exposure around, like we're not just going to go to war. We're going to win this war. We're going to, and like, just like a big, um, the media is talking about it. The general media, the general public and then the government and that's all you hear and so as i can imagine as a member of the military or the navy you're sitting there going and you're a young dude trying to figure it all out and you're like what the fuck am i gonna am i gonna go to war am i gonna am i gonna go to war and am i I gonna die am i gonna kill people like
0: it's crazy right it was a very emotional time too because i like, even though, you know, hindsight's 2020, and we look back on that. I mean, I don't know how, I don't want to say how people feel or felt, but, you know, I, I don't know. It it was an emotional time, and it felt like, it seemed like the right thing to do because of the way we were attacked. But, you know, I, I don't want to project what the politics should have been. But, yeah, people were ready to go. You know what I mean? People were like, all right, we're going to do this, you know? So Of
2: course. And there are two camps, yeah. right? There's always going to be the one yeah. camp that's that or maybe there are 3 there's like the middle ground where you don't know what to think and then there's the one the one school of thought that's like hey we're going to do this and we're going to win it and they people are just ambitious to get out there and then there's the other school mm-hmm. of thought that's like okay i i got to get out of this i don't want to have anything to do with this anymore and every you can't say what's right or wrong everyone's going to have their own um personal ideals or their own experience and um, interpretation of what the right thing to do is. Right. And so it's, I can imagine that you're trying to carry an unbiased lens while you're going through all of this, but you're hearing all of this different noise from different people and you're like, I don't even know what to think anymore.
0: Right. Exactly. You know, and I, I'll actually share this one with you too. Like when I was in school my chief, because they were like they were proud of me. They were like, "Oh, this is this this kid's gonna, you know, he's squared away," is what they would say. Like, you know, he's he's sailor of the month and you know, all this stuff. And like, so my chief brought me in. He's like, "Hey, check out these pictures," and he's showing me all these different. Like, basically, this is what you're gonna go do. And it's like they had good they had these plans for me. Like, this is how we want you to, um, you know, start your military career. And because as a photographer, you can do a bunch of different stuff. But I was gonna go to Oceana, Virginia, to um, load film into like the the wings of airplanes. And what what the reason you do that is because these uh airplanes, they drop bombs and then they document like what they hit or what they didn't hit. So here's my chief showing me like, hey, check out these pictures of like basically what it looks like when you bomb an area. It's, like this is what you're gonna be doing. And I'm like I'm like an artist. Like I'm like a sensitive dude. I'm like dude, I don't want to kill people, but of course I'm not saying that. Um you know, but I'm like, ah crap. Like this is you know, this is pretty real, you know, and, uh, I, I only did it as a means of like financial support as a lot of people. I think that's what a lot of people do it for. Um, just cause I had no direction. So when I saw that stuff, you know, I mean, I, I always knew it was real, but you know, it's, it sort of adds to the layer of like how you, how you view it. Yeah. And, and if
2: you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, you know what's going on, but as mm-hmm. soon as you have a hand in assisting something to happen, and again, everyone's going to feel different. So it's like you never want to sit and project what one person or right. another is going to feel about it. But for me personally, and what it sounds like, um, you had very similar views. It's like As soon as you have a hand in knowing what's going on and in what is actually happening you're like ah dude this is a little bit different than i thought i thought i was just going to snap some yep. photos but yeah, loading film for bombs like that that might be a little
0: that that's going a little far for me right yeah and you know i i never it's like i've always been conflicted about war you know and um but you get when it becomes that real you're like oh this is really real and, and to your point you just you never know what it's going to be like until you do, like until you're there and you're doing it. And, and even just the, um, the sort of values and the way that the military operates, you just don't know how you're going to feel about it until you're in it. And then you can kind of start to actually form a real opinion. And that's why a lot of people go, I thought I wanted to do this, but I actually don't want to do it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'll, I'll paint this final picture for you of me getting out of the military. Uh, so everyone knows Jason's getting out. It's kind of like there's almost like kind of buzz around the, the barracks. Like people are like, holy crap, you know, and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm getting out. It's got free, basically. And so the, what happens is the duty station, they, they want to mess with you. So um, they actually, they I forgot exactly all the things they did. But one of the main things they did that really ticked me off is they they wanted to they told me to um to give my uniforms back. But the thing is you pay like over a thousand dollars for your uniforms. They actually belong to you. And of course you want your peacoat because the peacoat's awesome. It's just like a cool you're like, that's my Navy peacoat. And um they sent a um uh, a petty officer up because I wasn't gonna give my stuff back. They sent him up to take my uniforms. And uh <laughs> so he's like He's checking all my stuff. He's like, where's your p code? And I'm like, you know, I'm not giving that back. And he kind of tossed it up on me. I'm like, what are you going to do, hit me? You know, because at this point I'm a civilian, so I have more rights than he does, and I know that. I'm like, what are you going to do, hit me?
2: Go ahead, man, Cause you're,
0: Go for it. You're discharged. You're, you're like on paper, I'm, you're discharged. Exactly. I'm still living there, but I'm a civilian. So if you hit me, yeah, that's a military, you're hitting civilians. And now I know I, I belong to myself now. I don't belong to the government anymore. So he can't hit me. And I was like, whatever, dude, here's my P code. And um, I had a buddy. N- not a lot of guys had cars because, you know, you come in from all areas of, of the U.S. But I had a buddy from that area. He had a car. He was going to take me to the airport. And one of the petty officers is like, um, he's like, nope, we're taking him. I'm like, okay, whatever. And so, you know, I get my stuff. And the one thing I did have was I kept my, it's like a a green sea bag because that was the only piece of luggage I had. So I had this green sea bag with my belongings in it. And then I had like a a, a guitar because I play the acoustic guitar. So I had this like little soft cover uh, sort of, it's called a gig bag. So I have that and they drive me off the base. And instead of dropping me off at the airport, they just, they literally stopped. There's a gas station right off the base. And he's like, get out. I'm like, dude, you're supposed to take me to the airport. And he's like, get out. And I'm like, whatever, man. So I get out and at least I have a cell phone and I can call a taxi. But uh, it was so wild, man, because I get out. I have. I, it's like so corny in a way or so cliche, but I have this, if you can imagine the luggage and stuff I have, this other van drives up. They're like, hey, man, you know how to play guitar? <laughs> and I'm like, "I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, I know how to play guitar. And he's like, you want to be in a band? And I'm like, no, man. I'm going to Hollywood. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh, it's like, it's like a scene it's, out of a movie. Exactly, dude. It was so surreal. It's like so goofy, but uh, but it that happened. It's it really happened, you know. And uh, so I called the taxi. You know, get the get on the plane, and I leave uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, and I go back to Bakersfield, and uh, spent a the year there saving up some cash, saved up as much as I needed to and then I uh headed down to LA in my Volkswagen bus and I I ended up getting a uh, like rooming with some uh, USC students um a film student and this is this is actually really kind of funny because so I I roomed with a film student and there was also a theater student and um yeah I that that's how I started my time there in LA um <laughs> I was there for I was in LA for a long time, but the the sort of funny part about this whole thing is you remember I I barely graduated high school, but um, sort of later on in my time in LA, I was dating this girl and her parents were like you should go back to school and I was like okay fine I'll you know I'll go to school I'll go to college for a theater degree, and so I went to a junior college and I got straight A's 4.0 I transferred to USC as a theater student. <laughs> So it's kind of it kind of came full circle in that way where I first got there and I'm like you know nobody and nothing and then like maybe five years later I ended up almost exactly where I started when I first got to LA. Um, so that was just kind of a funny little thing that happened. Um, but yeah, I don't want to ramble on too much. Uh, there's there's a lot that happened in LA.
2: <laughs> and when you're in LA, like you so you pull up to LA in your bus
0: mm-hmm. and
2: like, did you just find roommates on Craigslist or how did that go down?
0: So this was like, this was back in the day where I, I wonder, I can't even remember if Craigslist was around. It was like roommates.com. And that's how I found these people. It was actually kind of crazy because I had this fight with my mom just one night. She was like yelling at me about, she actually was kind of pressing my buttons and saying some pretty horrible stuff like, oh, you know, you're not going to do anything, et cetera. And I'm like, oh, no all right, so I, I get in my car that night, and I drive to L.A. Like, I, I'd already kind of had some stuff. I was setting it up, but, I like I emailed them back, and I'm like, hey, I, I want it, and I just drove down to L.A. that night and showed up and signed the papers, and there I was.
2: Just straight doing it, exactly what you, you had yeah. wanted to do when you were in the Navy, and then you're finally doing yep. it just because of... Yeah, man. One thing that happened, one one event in life, and you knew you were going to end up there eventually, by the sounds of it. But uh, it just took yeah. that, that little bit of a push, I think.
0: Well, especially when I was in the Navy, it was like, you know, because you kind of, in a way, when the plans fell apart, I started to regret everything. Because I'm like, what am I doing? I'm I'm doing this goofy roundabout plan. I should have just gone straight to L.A. Like, kind of kicking myself in the ass. I should have just gone there, like straight up. And so when I got out, I was super empowered to be like, I just need to save uh, save up some cash and then just go to L.A. Like, what was I doing? Like, this roundabout method. I should just go straight there and do what I wanted to do.
2: And when you, when you got out, did you have, like, a new appreciation? Like, as cheesy as it sounds, did you have a new appreciation Dude. for like what it meant to be free?
0: When I flew into LAX, I wanted to kiss that dirty ground, like the the concrete sidewalk. I was like I felt so good. I mean like I'm I'm a civilian, you know? Like you don't really know what freedom is until you've been in the military and then you get out of the military. You really don't know what freedom is.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's it's like almost worse than being in jail because at least in jail you still have autonomy even though you're locked up. And I haven't been yeah. in jail. So. Yeah. That's you what know, I'd, I'd imagine, think, like yeah. you're, you're autonomous and you don't yeah, have to report least... to anyone, you can form mm-hmm. uh, alliances with other people internally and have your own little groups and do what, read during the day, but it sounds like the military is just like you're on someone else's watch and that's the way it is.
3: Yep,
0: Yep. exactly man, they tell you when to eat, like when to do what, like you literally, you actually, you're bringing up a good point. I mean, you feel like less than a prisoner because you're like, well, at least a prisoner has a, a certain amount of rights and they kind of, it seems like they have a little bit of a autonomy of their time, like you're saying, like they, they can kind of do what they want. They can go to sleep when they want. Sometimes it feels like when you're in the military, you can't even, like, you know, we would work out like, um, we work out like, I think three days a week, we'd have to wake up at 4 a.m. and we'd go running like in the Maryland cold, like we'd run three miles, in this cold weather and then we get back into the barracks and uh, you'd have like 150 dudes and like four showers and the pipes are frozen and you have to take like cold showers uh, and, and everyone's mad because they're like hurry up and and like get in that shower and get out because everyone's waiting to take a shower. You have to be perfectly clean shaven. Um, I mean, it's, it's way worse. It seems like it's way worse than being in prison because they, they own you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you and there's nothing you can do about it other than go see the psychologist to try to get out. Yeah, pretend you're crazy. It's it's almost yeah, like there I mean, there are three ways out. You finish your enlistment, four four ways out. You finish your enlistment, you get killed, you uh you have self-harm and you end up killing yourself or Right. If you're lucky, then you can be listed as crazy. Yep. And
0: it's,
3: it's like none it.
2: of those seem like good options.
0: Or you could get severely, like, injured to the point where they uh, they do, like, a medical discharge. But that means that, like, you probably got, you know, messed up pretty bad. Something, you know, you so that, that can happen. But, yeah, I think that falls along the lines of, like, you know, some sort of harm. But, yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's it's pretty tough. So the the fact that I got out the way I did was, you know, kind of crazy. Yeah.
2: So you're in L.A. You go you go down to L.A., you, your mom, and you had a little bit of a disagreement. You hop in the bus, you go down to L.A., and uh, you end up living with some roommates, enlisting college, and what, what ended up happening there?
3: Well,
0: so... So, I kind of you know did a spoiler there, but when I first got there, like you know it's tough it's really tough to survive in l a like it's that city will eat you alive, man um It feels like you literally can't pull your car over because if you pull your car over, you know you're gonna it's gonna get towed or you're gonna get a ticket like a parking ticket uh there's nowhere to park like everything costs more money than everywhere you know anywhere I'd ever been um It's just like kind of an inhospitable place, so when I got there, I was working two jobs. I used my photography training to get um, – I was working for, like, a, a photo lab in Hollywood. It was actually, like, a, a Target photo lab, but it was, like, a different a different company was running it. It was called Qualix. So, technically, I didn't work for Ta- Target. I worked for this Qualix company. Um, and then right next door, there was, a like, an Ulta, like a like this uh, – I don't know. It's kind of like a 4 – I don't know, they, they sell all kinds of stuff, like fragrances. It was like a, I don't know what to call it right now off the top of my head, but basically a place where you can buy, like, shampoos and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, they need people to, because they were just opening up. So I was like, okay, it looks like they need people to, like, load in all this stuff and um, whatever. So I had, like, two eight-hour jobs. I was literally working 16 hours a day to to survive. Like, I would, I would actually, uh, so at Target, you'd wear, like, I think I was wearing, like, a black shirt and khaki pants. And at Ulta, they wanted you to wear all black. Um, and so I would go down to the parking structure and change my pants and then go right back to work at this other place. And so I would do 16-hour shit, like eight hours here, eight hours there. And then I would go home and, you know, take a shower, go to bed, do it again, um, just so I could sort of survive when I first got there.
2: It's like, it was like the groundhog day that you thought you left it. your groundhog day yeah. at camp camp. Yeah. Just- happening every day yeah and you it sounds like you had to hustle too because you you didn't have like the master plan of having the military support the financial military support would have fallen through Is—is that kind of what happened? that's exactly when you get exactly right
0: yeah because i was actually going to use the military hustle straight dude pure hustle like like 16 hours like legit 16 hours of actual work like you know hard work um so, yeah, I was, I was hustling. And, I mean, to be fair, like, I don't know how long I did that survive, for. Just to survive, right? Just to survive. Just to survive. Because as an actor, dude, you have to pay for all kinds of crap. So you have to, you have to build up a little bit of a bankroll so you can um, pay for, like, a professional photographer to take your photos. And you have to go get, like, hundreds of them printed. And then you have to start taking classes that cost hundreds of dollars, like, a week. Um, then you have to pay rent to live there. You know, and then you're trying to get a job that will allow you to go on auditions. So it's a pretty complicated puzzle.
2: And you got to feed yourself, and
0: yep, like there's a lot of beans. Eventually. Yeah, a lot of beans and rice starting out. You know, just 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 the basics. So just I just kind of hunkered down uh, at the beginning to to kind of get established. And then once I did that, you know. And I started chipping away at, um, you know, becoming an actor and getting an agent. And, um, eventually, the, the sort of – the big transition was I started working at a, um, a really – nice. like I worked my way up and got jobs at different photo labs, better and better photo labs. And then I got a job at like a high-end photo lab that actually, funny enough, um, they like printed like Joe Rogan's headshot, but they printed a bunch of people's headshots. And so I could get my headshots printed for free. I could work during the day and then they would let you go on auditions. So like, if you got an audition, you could actually leave. So I worked with a bunch of actors at this like high end photo lab and, you know, celebrities would come in to pick up their stuff or managers. So it was like very industry related. And it was also kind of like, like a feather in my cap because it's like, okay, like I I was working at a crappy little photo lab. Now I'm working at this like really serious, like they're doing um, high quality processing of like photos and, um, like retouching and all this stuff. So you kind of like – I learned a lot of technical stuff while I was there about um, – this is kind of my entry into graphic design. Um, I'm, like, learning digital editing skills, like uh, photo imaging. And they, eventually I got, like, a seat in they, – they took me from the front counter and they let me go to the back uh, to, to basically do some printing and stuff like that and work on Photoshop. So that's, like, my very beginning, like, entry – into like learning Photoshop and sort of learning some of these design skills.
2: And you're trying to get into the scene, like the actors, not like the the scene scene, like, oh, who, the who's who's, but you're just, you're trying to get into the acting scene. So you're getting an opportunity to rub shoulders with different people who are coming in and then different people who are also hustling
0: to be actors that are working there as well. Yeah, man, I mean, you'll take, you'll take anything you can get in terms of, like, if you meet somebody. That's the thing I didn't really like about it was there was a lot of um, networking that was, like, super fake um, because people are just trying to climb climb this sort of whatever this thing is. You know, they're just trying to, to get a manager, get an agent, and there's a lot of, like, you know, sort of these faces that people put on to get in your good graces and stuff, and, and that was something I never really liked. Um, but yeah, you, you really are just taking, uh, taking advantage of anything that comes your way if you can.
3: Yeah. And
2: you gotta, you, you have to know as much as you don't want to think it's a game, you have to know like who's going
0: to be able to help you out and who's not. Yep, exactly. Because there, that's the reality of it. I mean, there, it is a game and you do have to play it well, like this sort of, um, I don't even know if I'd call it politics, but yeah, whatever it is, you know, like schmoozing, really, you're schmoozing, like, all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's sometimes, like, the person who's the, the biggest suck ends up winning, right? Like, the person who who's
3: the yeah. biggest
0: brown noser wins wins the game. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps, you know. Um, people do whatever, I mean, they're kind of shameless about what they'll do to um, sort of get to the next level. I mean, it's really hard to get an agent, like a, a talent agent. And so people are always like, oh, you have an agent? And as soon as they find out you have an agent, they're like, hey, well, could you pass my stuff along or could you talk to him, or could I meet them or, you know, all that stuff. So, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's real creepy in that way. like, like you don't feel like you're dealing with real people. You feel like you're, you're in this vortex, and a lot of times the people that are there too. I mean, you've heard Rogan talk about sort of actors and the way they are. I mean, they're kind of like—I no, no, don't want to paint everybody with like a broad, you know, stroke or anything—but there's a lot of people who are seeking attention for the wrong reasons, and you know, you you meet a lot of like interesting people for for lack of a better word, just people who are very different or very—they got something going on psychologically or. And then there's a lot, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but sometimes you'll meet some of the coolest people you've ever met in your life because they are truly talented. And it's really about kind of getting in with the right people. And that, that didn't happen until, like, towards the end of my stay there when I decided I was, like, I, I, I didn't want to be in that industry because I, I didn't really care for the people.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some people that are there just for – they want to be – uh, media figure, right? Like they want to be recognized. Yep. They want the attention. And then there are other people who are just like, man, I love playing characters. I love being, I love yeah. being part of a story that's being told. And they're just, they're doing things for totally different reasons. And they don't care yeah. about and- having the latest Land Rover or Ferrari or Rolex watch. It's, it's a different ball game.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, it's exactly right. Like there's, you know, I, I would like to think I fell into that second category because I really enjoyed doing, um, like, community theater and stuff like that. I mean, that's what I did. I loved the art of acting and um, performing. That's what I like to do. And I thought, oh, okay, well, if you want to be an actor, then you go to Hollywood to act. But when you get there, like, the stuff that you're, you know, everybody's excited if they get, like, a commercial for, like, uh you know, whatever it is. Like, oh, I got a, I got a Discover card. T- I got a commercial for Honda. And it's like, I didn't come here to do commercials, you know? And, like, that was one of the things I rejected right away. It's like, I don't want um, – because you can get different, stuff like, types of agents. You can get a commercial agent or you can get what's called a theatrical agent, which just means that they'll submit you for TV shows and film, And I just pretty much rejected the commercial idea. And that's usually the easier agent to get. That's, like, the low-hanging fruit. I went straight for the theatrical agent and didn't stop until I got one. And because I'm like, I want to, I want to have like a film career. Like I want to be a real actor.
2: And so you were, you were there, you have the agent and you are there for eight years working with that same agent.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, it took, I forget how long it took me to get my first agent. Um, It took me like, I think maybe about two years and I got my first agent And I mean, there's a lot of hustling in a bunch of different ways. Like you're trying to get into the screen actors guild. So I did a bunch of, uh, it's called background work. So working as like an extra on TV shows and films. Um, I did that for a while. Actually, that's, that's probably, that was like my main gig there for a while was doing that kind of work. And so you get exposure to being on a lot of sets, like being around a lot of famous people and just like seeing the real process. So that's pretty valuable. Uh, eventually, you know, I got hooked up with the right people and, Oh, you know what it was? I actually met with a guy who was supposed to be, he was a manager. And he was actually, um, you know, seeing me as a manager. Like, I have interviewing him. He was interviewing me. And he's like, yeah, I've been managing, you know, actors. And, and a manager is different because what they do is they handle your career. They have, like, less people. And they're trying to guide your career to, to, like, be something. Whereas an agent has, like, a roster of, like, 50 to 100 people. And they're just submitting people for parts. Uh, so it's a different kind of thing. But I met with this guy, his name, uh, I think his name was uh, Matt Fletcher. And, you know, he never called me back. And I'm like, what the heck? I thought that went well. And then he called me back, like, maybe a couple months later. And he's like, he's like, believe it or not, I'm an agent now. (laughs) He's like, I just decided to be an agent. And uh, he's like, why don't you come audition? And so I went to go audition for him. And the first time I went to audition, like, I think I had, like, food poisoning the day before. It was, like, sort of, like, the worst-case scenario. And so I went in there, and I was just not feeling good. Did a horrible audition. I mean, I had a bunch of bad auditions, but that was just the first, you know, that was the start of it. <laughs> and um, they were kind of iffy. They called me back again, and I, I actually did a much better job the second time, and they signed me right there. And, uh, yeah, they started submitting me for parts. And um, starting out, like, it was funny. One of the first things they uh, I got called for was, like, some gangster. I mean, this is going back to my name, Gonzalez. I got called for some gangster because of my name. Like uh and I was like, what the heck? Like I'm like, this part doesn't match. So I ended up using my middle name, uh, my middle name Daniel, to kinda of make it so it was a little so my the parts I would get submitted for would be, you know, a little bit more of what I represent, I guess, or what well, I you look got like. Parts. Jason, Jason yeah, I love Jason
2: parts.
3: <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, because that's what people when they look at me, that's what they think. But when they read my name or or whatever, it's sort of confusing for people. So, um, so then I started getting much better auditions, and I auditioned for some cool stuff, man. Like, um, believe it or not, I auditioned for Superbad as like the Michael Cera role. But you know, I wasn't. No way. I was. He. Yeah, yeah. I was actually really stoked about that one because it was so funny. Like when I got the script, I was like, I was like, oh, Allison Jones, she was the casting director. And I knew this was going to be a really great audition because of her, like, you know, people who she cast, like, uh, Arrest Development and The Office and all this stuff. So I'm like, oh, this movie's super bad. And I'm telling everybody about it. And they're, at that time, nobody, nobody knew what Super Bad was. So they're like, what's the movie? I'm like, it's called Super Bad. And they're like, super bad? Like, it just sounded so weird to them. And I'm like, this is going to be a good audition. So I went and I did that. And, you know, I, I don't even think I got a call back, but, um, you know, I just, maybe I didn't have, I mean, Michael Sarah, you know, emailed it. I'm glad he got the pardon. And, I mean, some of these things are like kind of a foregone conclusion, too. Like, when you're in the industry, you learn that, um, like, some of these SAG films, they, they're obligated to call in a certain amount of people and audition them. Like, it's just part of the process. Even though they might know that they want to cast Michael Sarah, they still have to go through the, the sort of, um, you know, just the process of, of casting. It's only fair, I guess.
3: Oh.
2: So,
0: but, I mean, who knows?
2: Yeah, okay. probably maybe because it's unionized or whatever.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's why. Like that's the why actors, the actors guild
2: has yeah, they've got criteria or something.
0: That's exactly right. And um so yeah, that was like one of the notable ones that I went on audition for, but like a bunch of other stuff too like um uh The Pacific, which was like that uh Band of Brothers spin-off. Um and it was like being produced by um Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And so like these big auditions, like, you know, it was pretty cool. Um, but you know, I never really got traction. Like I, to be frank, I think I was just working too hard and I was trying to do classes and stuff like that. But when you don't, when you're not a practitioner, man, you just suck. Like you lose your skill. You go into these rooms, you're nervous as hell. You're like, Oh, this, this part's going to change my life. Hopefully I don't screw this one up. And so you just, you know, I sucked. Like to be frank, it's just like I sucked. I I wasn't as practiced as I should have been, as polished, and I was nervous and I was young. You know, so it's just kind of a crazy, a crazy experience.
2: And so, did you end up getting some decent parts
3: in?
0: You know, I mostly got because honestly, you, you you just you just wait around for your agent to call you, and so you're just doing the day to day. You're going you know, doing your classes, you're doing acting classes and stuff, and they'll call you up and say, like, oh, we got an audition for you. You go do it, and you either get a callback or you don't. And I never really I, – I never got traction. I never really did a great job. Um, I never knocked anything out of the park. I just got decent auditions, and um, I'm trying to think if I ever – yeah, man. I mean, so it's, it's sort of like – also, this is the time, too, when, like, YouTube was starting around, like starting to kick up and pilot season was starting to die. Like, there was just, like, it was, like, famine. There was, like, less and less of these auditions going on. So a lot of factors play into it. But, I mean, I'll just take the ownership and say, yeah, I think I just was a shitty actor at that time. Like, it wasn't like I was um, practicing the craft. I was just trying to survive and do the best I could. And so that's why, you know, I mentioned before going back to, to college made sense because I was like, well, at least I can like start doing theater again and start like sharpening the, you know, the skills. And then, um, and the plan, I mean, I, I didn't know I was going to get into USC, but once I found out I got into USC, that was like, that was such a big deal because, because of networking, like, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like, well, these are the the student films that are made there, you know, these are the people who are going to be like tomorrow's filmmakers. And it was just a really big deal. Like the audition, that was the one audition I I smoked. I killed that audition. And it was actually pretty scary because, you know, they, you, they call you in to this like Hilton hotel because they're flying people in from around the country to audition for this stuff for, to get into USC theater school. Um, So it's right by the LAX and you go in and there's all these people. It feels like American Idol. And, there's like uh, you know these, this, like the dean of the theater school and like some of these top-notch um, teachers, and they call you in this room. You have to have like a classic piece prepared, so like a Shakespeare piece, and then a contemporary piece. And at this point in time, you know I was like sharpening my my skills. I'd done some plays and was really kind of getting back into the practice of it. And so, yeah, sure enough, that was, that was one of the auditions that I just knocked out of the park. I don't even think they asked to see my Shakespeare piece. They just looked at my modern piece and they were like, all right, thanks. And, um, so that one, you know, it was a big deal. Yeah.
2: So the day in, day out, it's like you, you're sitting there waiting for these auditions to come down the pipeline and you're dreaming like, Hey, if I get this next part, it is going to change my life. Like you've always got that on that's kind of on the forefront like that's on your mind at all times but then you're just doing the day in day out the grind to survive because it's just so tough and I can imagine that must have been mentally taxing to have the the dichotomy between thinking how different your life could be and and you want to tell that story I was working two jobs and then I got this part and look where I am now right it's like you want to share that and you get yourself sharing that with people but you're just sitting Absolutely. there it's like you're waiting and waiting, and it's so stressful because it's it's like having a line in the water and not knowing when a fish is going to bite.
0: Absolutely, and and even think about like you know when you're on when you're on a movie set or like a TV show, you're literally standing next to and you're actually in the environment that you hope to be working in one day, but the chasm of where you're actually at career wise, you're not even in the same ballpark as those people because you know you're getting paid nothing for that day's work and like, it's it's like, yeah, you're standing there in the same room In in some cases you're standing shoulder to shoulder with like the principal actors. I mean, you know, people we all know their names, like famous, you know, I've, I've seen and met so many famous like named actors, like I can't even count like honestly. So, um, you're seeing them in the flesh and you're watching them do their thing and you're like, yeah, I can do that. But at the same time, you're just not even in the ballpark. So there's that, which is kind of mentally taxing. And when I got into USC, that's when it became the most real. I was like, oh, this could actually happen. Because the professors you have, they're actually doing work. Like they're actually on TV or they've done real films and they're teaching you. Um, I remember one of the, the professors I had, he called in his wife um, to come talk to us. And she was a she was the... Um, she was the mom for Donnie Darko. She was in *Dances with Wolves*. She was uh, *Battlestar Galactica*. You know what I mean? Like, um, so it starts to become very real. Like, you start to get in the ecosystem of the people who are actually doing it, and they know what they're talking about. They know, you know, they know about the business. And I remember when I was there, like, I think I'd been there for at least five years at this point, and it gave some statistics in one of my classes. They're like, like out of 500 people. Um, I think it was two people will will stay five years in LA. Like, if you had 500 people, only two of them will make it to five years. And I was like, oh shit, I'm I'm one of those two people of that 500 people. Um, and I've seen it a ton. I've met a bunch of buddies who I was like, oh yeah, these guys are going to be around forever. And then they would leave next year. They were out. So it, it just it so you alive, disenfranchised
2: man. at how how hard it is. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean. I <laughs> – I've been to LA a couple times, and I don't want to judge the city by by not having lived there. But the vibe that I would get is that it felt like certain parts of LA, and I'm I'm not generalizing, but it felt like certain parts dude, were. Dude, go for it. Um, judge it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it felt like certain parts were not necessarily that genuine. There was uh, a little bit. Uh, parts that were just super pretentious feeling because you'd see people get out of these crazy cars and mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they have money, maybe they don't, but they're dressed to the nines and they're walking down the sidewalk like they are somebody. And meanwhile, you're sitting there going, I don't care whether or not you have money, don't don't put on uh, a persona that makes you look like a dick that's what you look like right now to everybody else who just saw you pull up and it's not that having a nice car means that you're a dick or dressing nice means you're a dick or like vice versa for girls right it just means that if you walk with hubris and if you walk like you've got an attitude people like that stinks pretty quickly and people can sense that and that's the vibe that you get that's like that is that's what I've gotten from L.A., and that's what I've got friends who live in L.A. right now, um, a bunch of different friends, and, I mean, (laughs) it's a conversation that we have all the time, right?
0: Yeah, man. I mean, it's, uh, you definitely know what you're talking about because there's a lot of these people, they want to posture up and act like they're something so they can be perceived a certain way so they can get to the next level or, you know, it's it's exactly what you're describing. Um, Instead of just being who they are and being like, yeah, you know, I'm trying, I'm working hard, but you know, <laughs> it, it's not happening right now. Like nobody's like truly honest about, at least it doesn't seem like, about like what their true position is. They're, they're always trying to tell you about the next project or the thing they're working on. And then that's fine. I mean, you, you can be ambitious and stuff, but it, it's also, um, they're exaggerating to some extent to, to feel like they're important. And I get it. I mean, I'm sure I did that myself, but, you know, that's just the dynamic it creates is a, a dynamic that I personally didn't want to be in. You know, I, I didn't want, my final conclusion was I just don't want to be around these type of people. I don't want to work with these type of people because a lot of them are just, you know, pretentious. I mean, um, but there's, a, there are a lot of people you'll meet too. Like as it started to wind down for me and I, um, I went to USC for a year and, you know, there was some stuff that happened, and uh, I was pretty depressed at that point. And um, I was, like, living on my own, and um, basically I was dating a girl for, like, five years. And this was in Glendale. I was sort of, like, out of the the chaos of, like, central Los Angeles. I was a little bit in this, like, nicer area, a little bit removed, and doing my um, junior college. and And so when i when i got into usc i transferred and then you know some basically she cheated on me some things went down it was whatever just these things happen and uh so i found myself i used to have like a whole you know social group of people that i knew and would hang out with and then they were just all of a sudden gone and i was basically by myself in this like crappy apartment like literally in south central los angeles um and like you know it was like a rough neighborhood There was like you know it was it was pretty bad so <laughs> and during finals this was kind of crazy during finals um the apartment flooded because it was like raining real crazy and i was like one story down and so i literally had to move from this the bottom story like i think it was like four stories up to the other like, completely across this this apartment complex like it was super inconvenient during finals and I couldn't get all my furniture out, so I was, like, sleeping in the closet during the day because my schedule was so messed up, like, and I was, like, just trying to get my finals done, and um, I think it just chipped away at me so much when I finished that year, and I was going into debt because, you know, USC is not cheap, and I certainly couldn't afford it, and um, I'm, like, what am I doing? Like, I don't even want to be around these people. What am I doing? Like, this education... A theater degree doesn't really matter if you want to be an actor. Um, Most people just go there because they want to make the the right connections. And so the turning point for me was I I ended up moving out of that apartment and I moved into this, like, this house, excuse me, this house. And the funny thing was that house that I moved into was so close to the very first house that I, um, when I first got to L.A., it was like, it was almost perfectly lined. If you look on the map, on my Google Maps, it was like, boom, these things are almost lined up. They're like one street away from each other. It was like I came full circle. And so I'm in this house. I'm living with, um, there's like, you know, other theater students in this house. And um, a buddy of mine, he's a, one of my really good friends to this day, Jesse Einstein. Shout out to Jesse. <laughs> he uh, he ended up, you know, being in this apartment inside his house for just for the summer. He was like subletting and me and him became good buds. And, uh, you know, we just started hanging out a lot. He kind of brought me into his circle and he was actually a really kind of popular guy in, in the theater school. And so I I started hanging out with him and he graduated and, um, you know, we, we, became really good friends and he ended up moving into like Hollywood, Hollywood, like the, like Santa Monica and vine, like, you know, like that area. And, I'm like, naming the cross streets because uh, eventually I ended up moving in with him and our buddy David. And we were doing, like, these little independent projects, or one of them anyway, we were working on. And, you know, it was, like, actually starting to feel like, okay, this could be something. But I had already kind of made the decision that I was out. I was like, you know what, I think I drew, I drew a line in the sand somewhere, I think, around, was it, like, 2010? I was like, okay, in a year, I'm going to move. But the funny thing was I started having such a good time with these guys. like by the time it was time for me to move, I didn't want to leave because like I finally found a group of people that like I connected with, and like we were just having a blast. Um, and so talk a little bit about Rogan right now. Uh, by the way, I started listening to the podcast when they were doing like a when they were doing just like the, the video camera from like the they would open up a computer. Because Rogan used to have like a say now phone number. You could call in like a radio show. He would uh, tweet out the phone number and you could call in. And I remember that. And I remember him saying, okay, we're going to go live. So he would do like a live webcam thing from his computer. And that was the start of the podcast. I mean, I, I would listen to it from day one. and
2: um, Yeah, like that was to uh, me- d- day okay. one was him and Red, Red Band. And Red Band, Red Band, Red Band yep. already had a podcast. And Red Band was showing Joe... Like how mm-hmm. he's like, okay, uh, we're going to put the camera on now and they're talking through it for like the first 45 minutes and there were like thousands yep. of people watching that. Like I think there were a couple yep. thousand people watching because Brogan was like, man, there are like f- whatever thousand people watching. This is crazy. And they weren't even talking about anything. It was like them setting up the webcam.
0: You're exactly right. And that You're was exactly the right. start like, of the podcast.
2: It was like so crazy. And they were
0: trying to figure out. They were trying to figure out the format. They would set up like three chairs and they had like, they didn't even know, like, they had these, um, like the actual proper mics, like if you were in that a comedy club. Like, they were trying to figure their shit out. And yeah, I was, I was you watching had that. watching that weird background, time. too.
2: They had that, yep. that like graffiti wall background or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man, it was so janky. Like, it's just. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so when you're talking so about how, Logan, you, how man, did you
2: listening. know. Go ahead. Yeah, how After, did you know that, like, how, I guess you just knew Rogan from the scene there? Like, you love
0: him or you, know, you met him or whatever? Well, wasn't. yeah, You're like, like oh, I, was, um, this out. I was, you know, I was like an MMA fan, like, back in the days when, like, you know, like Matthews and George St. Pierre were having, like, their first and second fight. So I kind of had a little bit of an idea of them there. And then little known fact, I mean, I think Rogan would admit this, but if you remember Tom Green... Tom Green had like a proper studio yeah. in his house and Rogan would go on to his show. It's called Tom Green live. And I used to watch Tom Green live and Rogan went on his show and he's like, dude, I got to do something like this. And that was actually, Rogan says like he got his inspiration from, um, I forget, like a couple other places, but that's like one of the little known ones that he doesn't never points out. Um, I'm like, you know, he would do the Tom Green live show and, and, uh, he kind of got inspired that way. So I knew he was thinking about it and I pay attention to his Twitter and I just kind of was on the beat and I I think the reason I don't know why I paid attention to him, but just some of the internet commentary stuff he was doing and I don't know if you remember Two Girls One Cup, the reaction videos and um you know, I was just kind of aware of what he was doing.
2: And so you you were listening to it early days and yeah, uh,
0: before you even had and, like I, I mean you Yeah, go ahead.
2: And you and you already knew of them because of MMA and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Wow. So you you're you're in LA at this point. You're you, yeah, you're in LA at this point, and you're like you thought you were going to leave, but you end up staying because yep. your buddies and you are you still pursuing acting? Or are you um, are you just working at this point? So at
0: this point, um, the to the extent that I was pursuing acting was I was like helping these guys. They, they did like a Kickstarter when like Kickstarter was brand new and, uh, they, they wanted to do like a little short film. And so I was helping them with that. Like I, I was like acting in it, but I also did like some design for the the promotional stuff. And so it was kind of like, I knew I was headed out, but I was still helping these guys out with their project. And, um, so here's a kind of a cool story too. Like this is actually this is like a big deal to me. Like this is I don't know part of how I got into like boxing and um fighting and stuff. Like actually like I, I always watched it but never really did it. So these guys lived on the apartment that they had <clears throat> that I eventually moved into and started rooming with Jesse was on Santa Monica and Vine. And literally it's right next door to the wild card boxing club, which is Freddie Roach's gym. And I had no idea that his gym was there. So, you know, when I started like staying there, cause I was kind of couch surfing at first, I hear these, uh, the speed bags going off. I could hear them through the wall. I'm like, what the heck is that? So I'm like, I look out and I'm like, is this like the wild card boxing gym? I'm like, am I living next door to wild card? No way. So I pop into wild card and, you know, Freddie's there. Freddie Roach is front counter. And, I, I was trying to figure out like how much does it cost, and by the way, like super cheap. Like he made this stuff super accessible. Like 50 bucks for a month membership. You can come in anytime, and I think it was a five dollar drop in rate. I think it's still that today. And um, he's like, Hey, do you know how to wrap your hands? And I'm like kind of nervous because like I know he's a Hall of Fame, you know, Hall of Fame boxing coach. I'm like, Oh, uh, oh yeah, you know, like I, I know I don't know how to wrap my hands. <clears throat> and he's like, Okay, we'll come back tomorrow and we'll show you. And I never really took him up on it because it made me nervous. But um, but I did start, you know, working with one of the uh, – this guy named Shane. Uh, he was, like, this uh, kind of a, a gruff dude. But he was a younger guy, and he would, like – he would voraciously take notes on everything Freddie did. And he was, like, trying to become, like, a protege. But he was also kind of, like, a little bit crazy, too. Like, this guy would go fight people all the time, like, in the streets of Hollywood and stuff. And eventually, like, he – he did some crazy stuff and had to like, like go on the run and went to Venice and so anyway, but I, I was, I started at the wildcard um, boxing gym and started like learning how to box. I was there for about a year. Um, and at the exact same time, if you go down Santa Monica, not, not too far from that apartment about, I forget how many miles it was, but there's the Legends MMA gym and that's where 10th planet's at um, headquarters or it was anyway. And uh, so I was, at the same time, you know, I, I think I'd do boxing, like, two, three times a week, and then I'd go do jiu-jitsu at 10th Planet. And, um, yeah, man, I was uh, at 10th Planet headquarters, which was sort of surreal for me. And, you know, you'd see Joe Rogan there. And uh, my highlight was, like, I was rolling this with a buddy of mine, and I, I bumped into Joe Rogan once, and I was like, oh, sorry, you know. That was, like, a highlight of my experience there. Um, but the thing that kind of sucked, and I think this all played into the whole thing, is one day I showed up at Legends, and um, everyone's like leaving, like leaving the class. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, Legends is closed. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, man, it's closed. I'm like, you mean, what do you mean? Like, no class today? They're like, no, no, the gym has been closed. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I couldn't believe it. And so they ended up, um, 10th Planet headquarters had to go and do, uh, they had to go to Burbank for a while. So it was like two classes in one and so i'd have to drive out to burbank with a buddy of mine um and we would go to burbank for a while and so everything was sort of like i was having the time of my life at that point because i was able to train at these like you know top tier gyms that i've always like like oh man this would be exactly what i want to learn but then it started falling apart because it was like hard to go to burbank and um eventually jesse was moving out of this apartment in hollywood and it was like, okay, well, it just, it was like a natural transition. Like I said, I was going to leave and everything's kind of shifting. So, um, so I headed back to Bakersfield, uh, to, you know, basically I had a kind of a plan that I wanted to, to, to basically do some technology stuff. And I was kind of working on an uh, app at that time, so it shifted naturally. And, uh, you know, I headed back to LA, or sorry, back to Bakersfield. So yeah.
2: And so, you, and so you told your mom at this point, like, you'd been gone for eight years at this it was point? was eight years. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you told your mom, you're like, hey, I'm coming back?
0: Yeah, it was kind of crazy because the whole time I was in L.A., my mom would always ask, like, and I always got the sense that people were like, oh, so when are you coming back? Like, it was so weird. And in my head, I'm like, there, w- there was no going back. I was like, no, what do you mean? And so when it was time I, I forgot, you know, I forgot the conversation. I didn't even tell people that I stopped going to USC. Like that was a big deal that I got in and I just decided to stop going because you know, it wasn't helping me and stuff and you know, I, I don't know, I, I just eventually told them, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going back," but I had the intentions of moving to the Bay Area. In fact, dude, you know, it's funny because we talked a little bit about Tim Ferris before our work week actually shifted a lot of stuff for me because uh, I remember I was visiting Bakersfield uh, just as I would do every now and then and I was at a Barnes and Noble and I'm reading the four-hour work week and he's like talking about um, kind of like taking risks and like like how they're not really as much of a risk as you would think they are and just like trying to figure out what the worst case scenario is like what what's the worst that can happen you know and so I'm like reading this and I'm like yeah you know you're right and I thought to myself I've always wanted to go to Big Sur. I've always wanted to see it. So that night, that day, I just, I uh, called into work. It was a Sunday. And I was working at this, uh, I was doing design for a, it was like a wholesale body jewelry company. So they would make like, you know, body jewelry, and I was helping them make catalogs and stuff. And uh, so I called in, and I was like, you know, I'm not gonna not going to be there. I used like a vacation day. And I just drove up to, you know, up here north to Big Sur, and this is the day I made the decision, actually. Uh, so I drove up to Big Sur, got here probably around like 1 a.m., slept in my car, woke up. And I was actually calculating the worst-case scenario as Tim prescribed. And I'm thinking, well, the worst-case scenario would be my car would break down and I couldn't call. Like my, I would have no cell phone service or I couldn't call anybody. And um, so I'm driving up and down Big Sur. It's like, you know, first thing in the morning because, like, the sun woke me up, shining in the car. And um, I was tired, and I was like, well, I shouldn't be driving up and down the one. You know, it's kind of a windy road, um, as tired as I am. So let me just pull over and take a nap. Pulled over, took a nap, and I forgot to turn my car lights off. So my battery died in my car, and there really was no service up there. So the worst case did happen to me. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like, that's so funny. Like, I calculated the worst case, and here, here it is. So I'm standing down the side of the road waving at cars. And eventually, you know, someone pulls over and, like, uh, it was, like, a Mustang. And all it was was a tourist. Like, they're, like, oh, we don't have any jumper cables. We rented this car and whatever. And then I pulled over another, like, a Prius pulled over. And for some reason, they had jumper cables. So I jump-started the car or whatever. But it was that day when I, like, I sat on, um, like, Pebble Beach. And I'm sitting here, like, reading the four-hour work week. <laughs> And uh, I just remember thinking, like, yeah, this is where I want to be, you know, like the Bay Area. So that's kind of like the, the decision that happened. And so I knew when I left L.A. that I was going to go back to Bakersfield for a short period of time to save up some money and, and move up here. And that's basically what I did.
2: So you went back, and it's it's funny, everybody was was saying, hey, when you coming back. Meanwhile, in your brain, yep. you're like, yo, I'm the two in 500. Don't you understand that? Like, that's a pretty, exactly. that's a pretty crazy stat. I'm I'm the guy who's not leaving, so I don't know why you think that I'm coming back. And then right. when you went back, were people like, ah, oh, cool. Good to see you back. I knew you'd come back.
0: Nah, no, nobody was like, haha, gotcha. And plus, I felt like a very, I had like a, a sense of self-confidence because it was really a tough conversation that I, I had to have with myself that day um, on Pebble Beach. It was like, It was like, what do you want? It was like that kind of conversation. And I'd be really real with myself because things weren't going the way I wanted them to go. Things weren't panning out like I thought. And so it didn't really matter. I mean, I'm kind of like a uh, you know, kind of bullheaded guy, I guess. As you can, maybe you could probably tell, like getting out of the military and like just doing stuff that just kind of going against the grain of things. Um, It didn't really matter to me anyway if people would have felt that way. But I just kind of decided, you know, this is what I want to do. And I just changed my mind, you know, but nobody, everybody was very supportive. Um, so yeah, I just, when I came back, it was a little weird because Bakersfield didn't have like a lot of like graphic design gigs. And that's kind of what I um, started, you know, developing as my skill um uh, you know, after about like, I think at this point I'd been like doing it for about five, six years. And, so I ended up – are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so Gary talks about learning to sell stuff. And I I was also, like, a big wine library guy. I, I would watch wine library TV all the time. And um, so when I moved back to Bakersfield, I couldn't get, like, a graphic design gig because there was not much to be had there in Bakersfield. So I found this wine shop, and I was like, you know – I've been learning about wine. I'm interested in it. I want to learn how to sell stuff because that's like a skill set that it's always going to help you. So I ended up getting a job kind of, it kind of humbled me because, you know, I'm a little bit older at this point and it's it's like a wine bar slash wine retail shop. And I would see people who'd come in that I went to school with and they were like having these like successful careers. And here I am working retail, like, like, just ringing them up, you know what I mean? And um, it's kind of crazy. Like, it was a little piece of humble pie, but I also kind of knew what I was learning, uh, which was how to sell stuff. And I was using basically his approach, and I would I would literally pan wines. I would say, no, don't buy that. And if they, would, you know, if they wanted to buy some expensive wine, I would say, well, this one's better, and it costs half the price. I was literally just out of his playbook, um, because I was like, you know, I'm, I'm basically going apples to apples here. Like, I'm going to learn how to sell wine, and he talks about selling wine. So I'm going to do exactly what he's doing and develop myself in this way.
2: And you went from being – from rubbing elbows with all these people to this gig where, from an outsider's perspective, it's like, oh, look at Jason. Now he's just working retail, selling wine, and meanwhile you're sitting there going – I'm building the tools in my tool belt and I'm putting them in there because like you don't even know what I'm using this for. I'm just putting the ammo in the machine right
1: now.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, was, that's exactly what I was thinking, but every now and then, you know, you couldn't help but have like the the thoughts creep in like like am I a failure? Am I a loser, you know? But but at the same time, I would oscillate back to no, no, no. This is the right thing to do. Because you know, your family they're coming from a good place and they, you know, people always kind of question, you know, like, so like, so what's the direction? Like, what are you doing? You know? And, um, my, my good friends, they're, they're developing their careers. They've you know, graduated from college and becoming like a school psychologist and like uh, a medical nurse and like, you know, like pretty standard gigs, but like, like good paying gigs and respectable. And here I am working at a retail shop with like, like, you know, people who are like, 18, 19, 20 or whatever. And uh yeah, it was a little piece of humble pie, but I like you said, I also kind of knew I was putting the tools in my tool belt. So um a little bit of both yeah, really. That, that
2: linear path, it's that linear path yeah. and I think it's also societal, right? Where society tells us like that's the way you should do it. And now there's more attention, there's more um exposure for the other school of thought where it's like, yeah, if, Like not, I don't want to say follow your dreams, but do things that are uh, do things that are of interest to you, and you don't necessarily have to have some direct or linear path in order to be successful. And I think that's always a hard thing where it's like when you have these honest conversations with yourself, and you're like, no, I'm doing things that feel right for me. When they when they are humbling, right, or they're not things that you pictured. Because you're sitting there envisioning other things, right? Like for you, it sounds like you're envisioning, hey, I'm going to get this next big role previously, like the years before. I'm going to get this big role. I'm going to make it. Um, I'll generate some wealth from that, and my life will take a different direction. Meanwhile, you're sitting there going, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Even though you had an honest conversation with yourself to be like, I know this is right. Deep down, I know this is right. You question it, and that's that's natural. That's the way I am. I know a lot of people that are like that, too. You don't know yeah, if it's right, I but you actually know what's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've really touched on some stuff here. Um, I mean, everything you just said about, like, sort of following the, the intuition um, of, like, this feels right, and, like, I know what I'm doing. But I think that unless you're super self-assured, like, like a Gary Vaynerchuk, where you absolutely know what kind of animal you are, you're like, I know what I am, I know exactly what I'm about. Like, if you're not that, then I think it is kind of healthy maybe to question yourself a little bit because you're just you're just checking in and being honest about what, what the heck's going down. Um, so I think it is kind of valuable in some way to sort of question these things, especially early on, um, you know, maybe even to some, some degree today, but I think more and more I'm hitting my stride because I literally am following exactly, like, the intuition of, okay, this is the right thing to do. And... For a lot of, like, I wouldn't want to give, you know, general advice, but for people who are kind of confused about stuff, I would say if it doesn't feel natural, like, if it's if you have to try too hard, it's probably not the right thing. Like, you're probably not that good at it. Um, or, you know, like these types of things. Like, follow the follow your curiosity, your intuition, even if it seems super unrelated to what you thought you were going to be doing. Because in a weird way, it comes it has a way of coming back around and playing back into the big picture. At least that's what I'm finding and that's what it feels like today. Um so yeah, you just kind of said a bunch of stuff that I think uh, it resonates with me for sure.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, I'm I'm on the same page. I, I try to be honest with myself as much as possible and have these introspective conversations where you go, is this right? Am, am I doing whatever it is you're doing? And I got to, I've gotten, I guess it's like a slow progression, but I've gotten to a point in life where I will only ever do things that interest me. So if I'm interested yeah. in it, then I'll do it, right? So it's like, hey, I, I love podcasting. I've listened to lots of podcasts for tons of years. It's just like something I love. I'm going to do that, right? I'll figure out how to do it. Hey, I've never produced um uh any like produce video but nothing at scale right like never had a script get picked up or sold to show I'm like I'm going to do that and so by by doing these things right I'm going to like start some company based on x and 99.9% of people don't get it and in not getting it you end up taking a huge ear beating Right? Like just over and over oh, yeah. just an ear beating of of everyone telling you how freaking insane you are because especially like for me, like I got two kids now, right? Like they're both young kids. Yeah. I've got two kids and it's not about um it's just about like oh that's not what adults do. Adults right. adults act in a different way. Right? It's like no, I'm I'll be the first to admit I'm i I'm a full on man child. Right? like I'm, I am a man who acts like a child. I still like skateboarding. I still right. I still, like, do all of these things. It's like, if you're interested in it, just do it. And that's always my advice to myself. And if anyone ever asks, I'm like, dude, if you are interested in something, do that. Don't follow your passion because you're going to sit there for 10 years trying to figure out what your passion is. Just if you're interested in something, if you're interested in reading books and you're interested in in uh, having a YouTube channel, literally start a YouTube channel about you reading books on the channel. Like, do that, and you'll probably, it'll lead to some path. But if you try to perfect it, right, you try to figure out what this perfect passion is, mm-hmm. you're never going to get anywhere. You're going to spin tires in mud,
0: right? And Dude, it's, uh, one one yeah, million, one million back percent. To that. Yeah, man. Um, and, and And even to add to that, too, it's like, if you think you're interested in something, try to do it and start doing it, like just like what you're talking about. Don't calculate it. Just go – just start doing it. And if it starts to feel weird or off or doesn't resonate, then stop doing it or adjust it. Tweak it, yeah, whatever you it. need to do. Yeah.
3: But pay, exactly. Pay to tweak it, to feel. stop it.
2: hmm Yeah, and, people, and you don't have to – people think like, oh, um, I'm – Worried that if I stop doing this and people are going to think I'm flaky and I don't follow through, it's like no, just you be honest with yourself. If you don't like something, just don't do it. And if you do like something, Absolutely. keep doing it. That's it. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Like it's, it's it almost it, becomes it, it
0: binary: is. interest, no interest. That's it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that flaky thing, I think the flaky thing where that kind of comes from sometimes is a lack of self awareness. Like you know, it's like, am I being flaky? Am I not? well, you probably don't know what you're all about yet, which is why it starts to feel flaky because you're kind of also worried about what people think. Like, there's a few components there. But once you figure out what you're all about, like, once you understand your dimensions, like, your strengths, your weaknesses, what interests you truly, not because it's supposed to or because it can tie into a business model somehow, but because you, you just like to do it. Like, once you kind of dial those things in, then it absolutely becomes binary. And then you can actually start doing something, and then go, oh, wait, this isn't working. You can stop, and people are like, hey, why are you flaking? And you're like, hey, this isn't flaking. This is just part of the process. I had to do this piece, understand that I didn't like this piece, and now I need to do something different um, that sort of relates to that piece. But it's, it's really just an evolution or an iteration of, of sort of self-discovery or discovering what it is that you're all about, what you're trying to put out.
2: Exactly, and being so self-aware that
3: you know mm-hmm.
2: that it's, it's ongoing. Like, it's not like, oh, I've figured myself out. Yeah, I've figured, like, I, I want to think that I've figured myself out as of this day, not to get too philosophical, but as of this day on Earth. And maybe tomorrow I'm exposed to some new situation that makes me think differently about the world, and that becomes another um, avenue of interest. You can hold twenty interests at once. You can hold a, a thousand interests at once. It doesn't matter. Uh, and again, I I don't want to be cliche by just going back to Rogan. It's just it's something that's come up in conversation. But it's like he likes hunting. He's into comedy. He likes UFC. He likes I don't know. He likes a bunch of shit, right? And yeah, you like certain things, and I like certain things, and it's just like you can have all of these interests. And it's not weird. You don't have to be like, well, uh, the mental model for a hunter is that I'm gonna have to start acting like a hunter and looking like a hunter and I can't be into the other things or a comedian yes. or a whatever. Just do, yeah, do you and you're, you're good to go. Don't do you yeah, and you're in be, big trouble.
0: Is, is, be as truthful as you can with yourself, whether it's the dialogue you have or the actions you do, but like, what, exactly what you're saying. Don't, like, don't think about the the um, sort of these uh, archetypes or whatever you want to call it of what a hunter is or what you just do you as you're saying. And it would be really weird if we were all exactly the same and if we didn't have other varying interests. Like, I have a, a way too many interests in, in, in that way. And, you know, you said you're a man-child. Like, I am too. Part of the reason I'm moving to Colorado is because I want to snowboard every season every season I want to snowboard. And, um, you know, California's had a couple crummy seasons, but that's just a priority. I'm like, you know what? I have probably about 30 good seasons in my lifetime if I'm lucky. You know, time is, like, life is short. Like, I'm going to be next to a mountain where there's a bunch of snow so I can do that because that makes me happy as shit, you know? So I'm going to do that.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And And sometimes it's a product of, like, I would love to be, closer to the mountains, because we, like, Winnipeg is the plains. Like, it is the great plains. It is as flat as you get for as long as you can see. For for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Right? In every direction. And I love snowboarding, too, and I love being in the mountains. But I don't have that, right? I don't have the opportunity to do that without going on a major trip. So then I figure out other ways to use the call it the infrastructure and embrace the seasons that we have here so it gets super cold in winter go ice fishing because you can right i'll go play hockey outside on an outdoor rink because you can right like you can't do that in other places so it's like no enjoy what you do have make the most of that area and don't yearn for things that you don't have right and it doesn't mean no don't move to somewhere because you really want to be around mountains it's like gets back to that Ferris stuff where it's like, yeah, you want to do something, Mm -hmm. get up and do it. Don't, don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Just start making things happen. And so, um, you end up, and when you go to Colorado, like there'll be new things that you didn't know that you were interested in. Like, man, I don't know if you're into hunting or not into hunting now, but Colorado (laughs) is full of elk, right?
3: Just full. Elk. Huge elk. (laughs) elk.
2: Dude, Dude, you you can just like, you you can crush elk, right? Like that might be a thing.
0: Well, yeah. And I mean, that's part of the plan too, is like, I, you know, I've shot, I've shot, you know, plenty of guns in my time, but, um, you know, I've never gone full on hunting. Um, and that is part of the plan is like, you know, that does seem like something that I'm very interested in. I've, you know, I've watched meat eater, you know what I mean? Like, like I do want to do that. Um, so yeah, man, I mean, that's part of, yeah, that definitely captures my, uh, you know, it gets me excited anyway. Like, I want to go to New Zealand and do that, you know. And, and even growing up in Bakersfield, I mean, while it is a city and people have the wrong perception of it, there's also, like, a lot of my, one of my good buddies, Scott, um, when I was, like, younger, I'd go to his house, this house that his dad built. They have, like, you know, horses and stuff, and then mount it up there. Not, not to glorify, like, killing animals, but, you know, like, boar and, like, all these, like... uh he had, I think, he had one elk and a couple of deer. And you hear these stories, and you're like, "Oh man, that's crazy!" Like the time the the freaking boar almost killed him. You know, like I don't know what it is, but you're just like, "That's that's pretty savage." Like something about that I want to do. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, that's definitely part of the plan, like hunting. And I know elk is a uh, Colorado's a place for elk. So at least in Cal, I'm sorry, at least in uh, the U.S.
2: Oh yeah. You're, you will be in the right place. I mean, they're, they're plentiful there, and they're huge. And the meat yeah. is delicious. So you'll be in the right place. Yeah, but you're making An elk steak or elk, uh, you can do so many things with elk. Elk bratwurst, like elk, elk sausages, oh, it's freaking ridiculous. But it's, that's the crazy man. thing is that you hear people, like you say, hey, I want to get into hunting now, or I want to get into, like... Like you said, your dad skateboards and he's older, right? And people, yeah, yeah. if you If you want to start anything at any age that you haven't done previously, people think you're losing your mind or you're crazy okay. or you're just like you're a lost soul instead of being like, hey, good for you for following your interests, not even your dreams, just for doing things that interest you. Like maybe yes. one out of every freaking hundred people will pat you on the back and be like, hey… Good for you. And it's not that you do it for the accolades, but the other 99 will sit there and give you an ear beating. And the closer the degree in separation those people are from you, or like, I guess the closer they are to you, the louder and harder that ear beating is. Cause they're just like, what the fuck are you doing? Hunting. Wait, wait, you're moving. You're going to be a hunter and you're snowboarding. You literally are losing your mind. Like find a direction in life right? Meanwhile, it's like the yes. end game is the long
0: game and you're always going to
2: end up in the, the
0: place where you should be. Yeah, man. And I mean, you're you're saying all the, like, the key things and that's why what's kind of trippy about this whole Anchor thing is, you know, the reason I got on that platform and you're talking about how things can change in one day. Well, jumping on that platform, I'm like, man, this is actually, I love this medium and the reason I'm on that platform is to exchange these ideas that you're talking about. I mean, look, man, we're, we're talking about the same stuff. We're We might as well be carbon copies. I'm sure we're, we're different, but man, we have a lot in common and um, to make these connections and sort of, you know, uh, reflect off each other about like what we've learned and how we're really not that crazy. In fact, we kind of come up with some of these same conclusions in isolation because everyone else around us is, I mean, I don't know your experience, but you're kind of talking about, um, sort of the dominant culture that almost serves as white noise because they want to make you feel like you're, you have two heads because you you have a multiple interest and you, you want to try things out and you're not trying to be a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all I got to say really about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's I think it's hard too because we have to also – understand like regionally we're in different areas um from a content Mm -hmm. perspective though we're both consuming what it sounds like to be somewhat similar content uh
3: Mm -hmm. outside
2: like just outside of anchor altogether and it's hard to keep an unbiased lens and not think like oh yeah they're just drinking the kool-aid they're indoctrinated with all these thoughts and ideas like no there's yeah there's a lot of different content maybe there's some some similar content, but there's a lot of different content that we've been exposed to through our, our entire lives. And it's like we're coming up with this conclusion because we both come from very different places um, and have had different experiences. And we see that other people are doing things. And it's not about following this the path of other people and saying, oh, that's how you be successful. It's like, no, just do you and you'll be successful. But you see all these yeah. other people just doing things and they're they're just sharing their stories and I'm like, man, as soon as I started just focusing on stuff that was important to me, the puzzle pieces started falling together. Yep. And that's kind literally of literally creating the
0: direction, right? Yeah, it's literally creating priority. I mean that's what happened. This is like why I'm going the direction I'm going with you know i I've, I've literally just looked at everything. I said it was important okay, now what's the first important thing? Now what's the second important thing? What's the third? And when you go down that list and you create that priority and you start sort of checking it off, I mean, you don't have to argue with yourself about whether that resonates or not. I mean, you already know, like, that's what I want to do. And so everybody else who's talking, I'm like, I don't
3: care, you
0: know? So, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like I'm rambling here, but that what you just said, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to me, so. And so
2: you're like right now you're out in the valley you're you're working out there you mm-hmm. moved
0: from Bakersfield
2: to the valley without knowing what you were going to do out there.
0: Well, so when I moved back to Bakersfield, um, I had kind of you know I I feel like I'm a a creative guy I'd like to think I'm creative at least with some of these I like to solve problems and so when I moved back to Bakersfield I actually had an idea for to build an app. And I hired a team of people, um, one guy who was like local, but he had a team of like, uh, people overseas and I built this app, put it on the Google play store and it was pretty successful, like four and a half stars, 50,000 downloads. Um, I mean, it was hard, man. It it took me 18 months to do this. It was really, that's a long story in itself, but, um, you know, this is my brush up, like I'm brushing against like sort of technology and going, okay, I think I want to do something like this, and I'm currently a graphic designer, so, um, you know, it, it seemed like the next logical step in a way, I mean, was to come to San Francisco and see who's here, what's here, and, and get in the mix um, and just check it out, you know? So uh, that's that's kind of what I did. I made that plan, and I came up here. I mean, I I'd already knew that I wanted to check out this area anyway because I felt like I wanted to get away from L.A., uh, but I wanted to stay in California. So, you know, kind of going back to what we we're talking about before, which is you make a decision, you follow your interest. I followed my interest here. It's been about four years or so. And now I've, I've decided I'm interested in other things. And so that's Colorado. And I'm totally open to the possibility that when I get there and, you know, try, I'm going to try to buy a house. I mean, that's what we've been saving up for, me and my girlfriend. Um, we're, the plan is to buy a house there and uh but we we're also open to the fact that that could change too, and we might go somewhere else or do something else um but you might be trying to follow a, a through line or a story here um, so I'll, you know if you want to ask me a question about how i you know what's next or whatever you know go ahead
2: just <laughs> do the story is the whole conversation
0: so the what yeah. was that app
2: that you that you dropped?
0: Yeah, so okay. It's you have to. It, it was a while ago, but I think it was 2011. So smartphones had been out for a little while. Um, a big problem with these smartphones is people wanted to, you know, obviously wanted to text all the time and the the screens on these things were just super bright. And so I'm looking at this, I'm coming from like a photography background, knowing understanding light and understanding like how this could be manipulated. So I built an app called Lowlight which what it did is it took the, um, it was literally, I don't know if you know what a fab is, which is a floating action button. Um, this is before fabs existed. I basically came up with this idea of like, what if you had this button that could overlay over your whole operating system and you could dim it down as low as you want. So you could literally be in your bed and the person next to you wouldn't be even bothered because, you know, the, the, the setting is so low. And, I thought that was a pretty cool idea, but it took me so long to execute that um, there was a couple apps that finally hit the market and they got both most of the share. Like the main one, it was a horrible app, but I mean, the, the, the user experience really sucked, but they had like a million downloads. And I was so sure I'm like, oh, I'm going to invest in this. And this is going to make me, you know, I'm going to make some cash. I was kind of following it was, you know, still a little convoluted here where I was like following my interest, but kind of like, making it a business plan at the same time instead of just making something. Um, so I built this app and, you know, it, it was, in my mind, it was still a success because it was something that I was able to put in my portfolio and then it got me the next gig. It got me hired at a, this healthcare technology company up here. It was like one of the things I showed them uh, specifically, like my, the my manager who hired me, I showed it to him and he was like, Oh wow, this is like super impressive. Like, How'd you do this? And I was like, yeah, like kind of worked with a team of people. took took a little while, but you know, finally built it, and and here it is, you know. And so, in a way, it was its own success. It just it didn't it didn't make me the millionaire that I thought it would. And I I'm kind of joking about that, but you know, like it didn't come with that financial success where I thought, oh, you know, I'll sell it for 99 cents and you know get x amount of dollars or whatever. So. That, that's what I built out when I was in Bakersfield, and you know, I kind of figured it would. I didn't know really what the future of it was. I just knew that I was going to sort of play with this technology because I was following my interests to some degree, you know.
2: Yeah, like you're just doing something that you thought, hey, I want to learn more about this. I want to challenge myself, see if I can actually right. make this come together, and then you do it. And then there's always that thing that's like nipping at the in the back of your mind. It's always, it's like being the actor and you're sitting there going like, oh, I'm going to get this next script and that's going to make me muchos dinero. Yeah. You know, like. Yes, sir. That's the hard thing. And it's, it's, and you're, you're being rational though, right? Like you're being rational to think, hey, how, how could I possibly make a little bit of money off this? Because that's normal, right? It's like not everything in life is or can be an art project and not everything should be like a hardcore business. There's this hybrid in between.
0: Yeah, man. And so I really believe uh, in it too. Like it was, yeah. I was literally building something that I wanted. I was like, I want to be able to be in a movie theater with this was back in the day when like a lot of, it felt like people were still going to movies. I don't know if people still do that or whatever, but I could be in a movie theater, dim my screen all the way down. No one will even know I'm texting right now because you know, so it was, I was actually scratching my own itch. I was trying to do everything, you know, that that are sort of these popular. Uh, you know, these guys talk about whether it's Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, Gary, whoever it is. Um, and those aren't their specific words, but I was like, I'm following their advice, going, yeah, I do want to do this. And but it could also make me, you know, it, it kind of filled all needs. Um, but you know, it didn't. It didn't pan out to be the success. It was just another failed project that I had done, which is fine, because that's experience, you know? And, but I was actually using it, and people were loving it, too. Like, on the Google Play Store, people were like, oh, my gosh, this app is the best. And, you know, that just made my day, man, like, reading that stuff. Uh, like, wow, I actually built something that people like and they use. And I, I had a horrible strategy, which is I, I did, like, a free base. I, I, it was totally free, and I thought somehow I could do an a in-app purchase, but I biffed, I biffed the model. Like, I just didn't do my due diligence on that part. I think I was too focused on the build of the app. And so when I submitted it, it could only be a free app, and I didn't have enough cash to go back to the developers and say, hey, we need to do a, an, in-app, uh, an in-app purchase version of this. So, you know, it, it never made any money, but it also – it was sort of like a safe bet, like – I didn't lose – you know, it wasn't like I lost my shirt off that or anything. Um, so it was a really good learning experience, as corny as it sounds, but I, I got a lot of experience from that.
3: Of
2: course. And it's – I mean, it's, there's social proof. Like you said, that you got hired at that healthcare tech company because of what you'd done with it. And it's its not a failed project. I mean, 50,000 downloads isn't – thats it's not um, – that's not a just like a low number of downloads that's significant enough right like yes we're not talking about uh heavy platforms that would have millions and millions of downloads right those are those apps are far and few between lots of apps have downloads in the hundreds or even like the Mm -hmm. low thousands they don't even have like tens of thousands of downloads so it's fifty thousand is not I would not call it a failed project it's you you said to yourself you're like man I'm gonna do this I'm gonna figure out how to do it I'm gonna launch it there it is boom it gets downloaded makes a difference in people's lives you learn something from it and it's just one of those things that like sits in your back pocket you're like hey I, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it and I did it and it's not about um, it's not about bragging rights it's not about being so Confident in yourself with like, oh, I can do this. It's just about, hey, this is all about self accomplishment, and that's that's the way, you, that's the way I personally try to live my life, and it sounds like you do too.
0: Yes, sir. And I mean, to, you know, it that eighteen months, I worked so hard on that thing, man, and it it, you know, to your point of like, I get, I guess, just the accomplishment of it all, like. There were so many times I thought it, it was never going to happen. Like, I'm like, this thing's never going to get built. Because I, I went through, like, a bad developer. And to be fair, he, he wasn't a bad guy. Maybe, you know, I, I learned a lot. I gained a lot of experience, um, you know, the hiring process and and just working with people. And Because I'd have to drive down to San Diego to meet with this guy. And I was thinking, you know, I don't want to hire anybody who's overseas because, there's a ton of problems you can have with the communication. I want to meet meet with somebody in uh, the U S that I can see face to face and really show them my vision. And that ended up not working out. And, um, I had to force this thing. I mean, I worked day and night on it. When I would get done selling wine, I'd come home and I would start mocking up stuff and like sending it over to the new developers. And I think we were about a year, we were over a year in with the, the first guy and, he was just dissing it. Like, I couldn't get him to do it. And he's he's telling me all the problems and this and that. And, like, at a, at a certain point, I had to have a tough conversation with him and basically fire him. And that was a really bad moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a really bad moment because, you know, he, he, uh, he didn't deliver. So, like, the money that I paid him, I was like, yeah, man, like, you're going to have to – you're going to have to – like compensate me for this because you didn't make what you said you could do, and that was a kind of a painful process. But got through it, hired this other team, and it was crazy how almost easy it was after that point. I mean, I don't want to say it was easy. There was still a ton of work to do, but um, I I had hired the right people, and uh, we were able to get it done. And once I got that thing done, I just felt like collapsing because I just I was like I finally did it. It's done. I, I proved it to myself that I could do this, and I did it. So, yeah, it was a win. It was a big win. And then, you know, the downloads and all that, I mean, that was just icing on the cake. I was just, I literally remember the day, like, I finally built this thing. and It works. So, yeah, it was it was a pretty big deal.
2: And this was all self-funded? Like, you didn't raise, raise a self-funded, seat round or anything yeah. like that? No,
0: no, no, didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I went to, went around to my family and got a little bit of money from like my brother, my mom, my grandparents. Um, I still, I still owe my brother a little bit of cash, but I paid everybody else back. Uh, he's like, I don't even want you to pay me back. And I'm like, no, I'm going to pay you back. Don't worry. Um, but right now we're saving for a house, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but anyway, so yeah, like I, I did that and I also put my own personal money into it and, um, A lot of time a lot of time spent like I kind of look back at it and go man like you know I felt like I I probably shouldn't have spent as much time as I did like I can see all my like where I could have done better and I could have been more efficient but that's just called experience like I was going into something like I didn't know what I didn't know that kind of thing where I just went into it sort of blindly and and I'm glad I did because otherwise, like, how else do you learn this stuff? Like, you could sit around thinking about it all day long, but you really got to log the hours and go through the trials and tribulations and, and kind of eat shit a little bit. You know, you got to eat shit every now and then and, and go, okay, you know, that sucked or that didn't work and then figure it out on the next time around.
1: Every week I play soccer. I play indoor soccer in the winter. In the freezing cold winters of Winnipeg where it gets to be minus 50 degrees Celsius. It's pretty cold. And in the summer I play outside like normal people do. I play on good old patches of grass. And one time I started playing a little bit harder. I tend to play hard as it is. I just like to go in there and grind and hustle and do what you gotta do but everyone noticed and they're like man what what are you doing that like what did you eat this morning and surprisingly it wasn't what I ate it was what I was using as supplements so I tried out these new things these mushroom blend nutraceutical caplets they're called shroom tech sport they're by a company called Onnit. o-n-n-i-t Anywho, heard about on it actually, through uh, through Joe Rogan's podcast, and uh, it's this nutraceutical company. Ironically, the nutraceuticals, they've got a bunch of stuff, Alpha Brain, New Mood, Shroom Tech, Shroom Tech Sport. Um, they've got a bunch of great stuff, and there are all these like supplements you can take that help give you different, like boost energy, or um, give you mental focus, if you want to call it that. Um, for, for if you're thinking or putting your good old noggin to the test, your brain, giving it some exercise. Anyways, tried out these supplements, the Shroom Tech Sport, and uh, it legitimately gave me more, I wouldn't say more energy, more stamina, it just gave me a little more hustle in my step, allowed me to go a little longer, a little harder. And uh, I'm skeptical about this kind of stuff don't want to buy into it right away but it worked like it legitimately worked and so I've been using Shroom Tech Sport regularly and I love it and uh, that's kind of the difference in what's what's helped step up my soccer game even as an old man 36 year old man I still try to be pushing myself to be better and better each year just kind of personal goal and and uh yeah little things like shroom tech Sport make a big difference so this podcast is brought to you by the gentle folks gentle men and gentle women over at onnit, onnit.com uh they're just a total human optimization company so they've got all these great nutraceuticals and things like kettlebells and and uh different exercise equipment and um i guess i've got exercise gear if you want to call it that different things but yeah go check out on it um really great peeps over there so thanks to on it for all they do it's also brought to you by a company that wouldn't exist if we had to navigate by the stars so we don't have to navigate by the stars anymore thanks to cedar and moss Cedar and Moss is a mid-century modern lighting company based out of Portland, Oregon, and they blow the glass, uh, they make the metal, they fabricate everything by hand, and really true craftsmen of craftspeople should say of what they do. So, Cedar and Moss, C-E-D-A-R, A-N-D-M-O-S-S dot com. Cedar and Moss is uh, is a company that's got the lights dialed in. So. If you're afraid of the dark, if you don't want to navigate life by the stars, or if you just want to have a good bedside nightlight, go check out cedarandmoss.com. They will hook you up. So thanks to Cedar and Moss, the podcast is brought to you by them as well. And last but not least, haven't asked in a while, so gotta ask. I know we finished chris friesen season one and this is kind of the we're right back into it with all these new episodes but if you haven't had a chance to favorite um favorite subscribe to the podcast and review it on itunes i would greatly appreciate it so any and all support is immensely appreciated and uh i don't think you know what it means but truly do appreciate everyone who takes the time to do it small ask big return thank you kindly